0: In anticipation of Labor Day tomorrow, I want to take you on an all-too-hasty and inadequate tour of industrial and labor history in this country over the last 130 years with an emphasis on our evolving views of the individual and the collective. In the end, I want to suggest that what we must search for is a synthesis of the best features of both those views. We are living, as you heard, in a new gilded age, You heard a statistic in passing in the first reading. Here's another numerical take on the same skewed distribution of wealth, this time from Peter Dreyer in the Los Angeles Business Journal. Today the richest 1% of Americans, those 1.5 million people with incomes over $348,000, has 22% of all income and about 40% of all wealth. This is the biggest concentration of income and wealth since 1928. In 2005, average CEO pay was 369 times that of the average worker, compared with 131 times in 1993 and 36 times in 1976. End of quote. The first Gilded Age, spanning roughly the years 1877 to 1890, coincided with immense industrial expansion and population growth, including about 10 million new immigrants who took many of the mining and factory jobs in industries where there was the most labor strife. Just like Andrew Weil in our day, the super-rich of that era, men like Cornelius Vanderbilt, John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, and J.P. Morgan, thought of themselves as exemplars of the American ideal, industrious, clever, self-reliant, and enterprising exactly the kind of people any sensible person would want in a position to transform the raw resources of the nation into wealth that would benefit everybody. These captains of industry were steeped in three interrelated and mutually reinforcing doctrines. Let's say fair capitalism, rugged individualism, and social Darwinism. Undergirded by a religious faith that reassured them that their financial success was a reward for their virtues. Of course, people generally favor ideologies and cultural myths that justify their status and behavior and validate their outlook. Who wouldn't? It is a small wonder then that the most successful actors on the economic stage would promulgate precisely those doctrines that held them blameless for the lesser fortunes of others. Many of the apologists for the enabling doctrines of the age were Calvinists, descendants of the Puritans, who convinced that God destined some to greatness and others to a life of toil. But not all. One of the best-known writers of the age, Horatio Alger, was in fact a Unitarian, for a brief period a Unitarian minister. He wrote a series of novels about plucky street kids who rose, maybe not to enormous wealth, but at least to respectability by dint of their honesty, persistence, hard work, and luck. Here's how Carol Nakanoff puts it in her book, The Fictional Republic. Quote, Alger's heroes clearly exhibit the moral and ethical conscience of the mid-19th century Unitarians. Harvard Unitarians believed that humans were born with a moral faculty, with the potential to make moral judgments. In this sense, they were equal. In contrast to the Calvinist doctrine of predestination, Alger's Unitarian heritage offered the universality of grace. But moral judgments were not mere instincts. The faculty of judgment must be made conscious, even possibly trained. Not all used this faculty, but Alger heroes, they had good instincts and discovered how to trust them." End of quote. In other words, if you were born poor and stayed poor, in spite of the opportunities life offered you, it was your own damn fault. Conversely, if you emulated Alger's plucky heroes, you could defy predestination by social class. But the contrast between the extravagant decadence of the super-rich and the lives of ordinary workers was just too strong for even the most persistent myth to justify. There was, of course, no doubt that the titans of industry were innovators in management, finance, and production, and they were quick to see the potential in new inventions, but they were also monopolists, profiteers, manipulators of stock, and bribers of legislators. They imposed inhumane working hours, cut wages or locked workers out at will, and brutally suppressed unions. The union movement was in its infancy. In fact, even after the four-year-long depression that began in 1873, during which as many as 25% of New York workers were unemployed, there were still only three national unions. When there were strikes, factory and mine owners hired Pinkerton's men and other private militias to suppress them violently, and sometimes even police, state militia, and government troops intervened on behalf of the owners. Thus, it was inevitable that strikes were violent and there were riots and that the union movement frightened the middle class. The violence, together with a wave of anti-communist hysteria, fueled anti-immigrant feelings, too. For instance, during a Cleveland steel strike, newspapers denounced Polish steelworkers as, quote, communistic scoundrels who have hoisted the red flag of agrarianism, nihilism, and socialism, and who revel in robberies, bloodshed, and arson, close quote. After another severe depression, beginning in 1893, during which unemployment exceeded 10% for at least five years, the dominant political ideology finally shifted from laissez-faire economics toward progressivism. Progressives were reacting to corruption and abuse of of government power. But they were also reacting to the immense social and economic shifts in the wake of large-scale immigration and industrialization. Many, of course, were motivated by fear of social and political unrest, hoping that moderate reforms would stave off revolutions such as the one in Russia in 1917. But many were motivated by concern for social justice. The same empathy across social and ethnic lines that could turn a comfortable citizen of 40 or 50 years before into an abolitionist could also make a progressive social reformer at the turn of the 20th century. One measure of national solidarity is our willingness to redistribute income. And the progressives did, in fact, succeed by 1913 in persuading the requisite 36 states to ratify the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which authorizes a tax on incomes. Congress soon passed an income tax law with rates beginning at 1% and rising to 7% for taxpayers with income in excess of $500,000. Nonetheless, the Roaring Twenties saw a resurgence of massively uneven distribution of wealth, as you've heard twice in the statistics. This time, however, the big winners succeeded only by co-opting their workers. Here's how Berkeley professor J. Bradford DeLong puts it. Henry Ford became a celebrity and a symbol. This man was using the extraordinary productivity of modern manufacturing not just to make a fortune for himself, but instantly to raise his unskilled employees into the comfort of the middle class. There are two reasons why Henry Ford might have gotten more than his money's worth out of the $5 day. The first is that an inattentive or sullen worker could disrupt the mass production assembly line and lose large amounts in profits. By tripling his workers' wages, the company could ask its workers to become, for eight hours a day, a part of the production machine that the Ford engineers had designed and refined. The five-dollar day assured the company that the essential human appendages to this machine would always be present. A second is that an assembly line is very vulnerable to so-called direct action. It is easy to sabotage. By raising the stakes that workers had at risk in any shutdown of Ford's operations, he made it less likely that strikers and sabotage would hit his company. End of quote. The rapid expansion of the middle class, together with political and labor reforms, such as a shorter work week, kept alive the common person's dream of unlimited access to leisure and wealth. Again, though, disaster struck, this time in the form of the Great Depression. This time, it was not solely the unwashed, the aliens, the troublemakers, who bore the brunt. This time, people like you and me were out of a job or saw their savings wiped out through no discernible fault of their own. In my opinion, this was a shift. An impossible to ignore cry for widespread empathy, for solidarity, if I may use that term, and I believe it paved the way for our first real national consensus to redistribute wealth. There was resistance, of course, to the politics, policies, and proposals of, quote, that man in the White House, end quote, as many referred to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And there were still violent confrontations between labor and police supported industry, including on our own doorstep here, the near meltdown of the Minneapolis trucker strike of 1934. By the end of World War II, however, with the return of prosperity, the prevailing mood had shifted. I was born into that post-war world of middle-class comfort and conformity. As an adult, I I think of it as a luxury not to have to worry about day-to-day sustenance and to be assured of the prospect of some kind of medical care and retirement. But as a child, of course, I took those things for granted. A society that enjoys such luxury can afford to turn its attention to projects of discovery and to social injustice. So we had voyages to the moon, we had the civil rights movement and the women's movement. We are, of course, I keep saying of course, but it is, of course, by nature inclined to view our own circumstance as the norm for all places and times. So it was that the self-absorption of the me decade, as Tom Wolfe called the 1970s, the extravagant greed of the 1980s, and the resurgence of religious fundamentalism all took me by surprise. They were shocking and dismaying, but they should not have been as surprised. As we've heard often from this pulpit, fundamentalism is a perennial staple of the American spiritual diet. And as I've been trying to outline this morning, staggering inequality of wealth and the ideology that supports it is a perennial staple in the American socio political diet. The cultural idea of the individualist as hero, rising to riches and adoration by dint of his or her efforts, has been enjoying a revival in the last three decades or so. It has always been a sop to the poorest of the poor. But as more and more people find themselves on the economic margins, it is finding a new and receptive audience. The vehicle for the dream varies. Sometimes it's basketball, hip-hop, American Idol, reality TV, or even the lottery. But the essence is the same. I am lifted suddenly from anonymity and poverty into celebrity and wealth. Just two days ago, in fact, I heard on public radio an interview with a woman whose dramatic on-the-scene amateur video footage has been incorporated into a new documentary on Hurricane Katrina. When asked why she, a person on the margins, who had just confessed to the interviewer that she'd been supporting herself before the storm by dealing drugs, why she had bought the -the fallen-off-the-back-of-a-truck video camera with which she shot the scenes in the documentary, she said it was part of her plan to make it as a rapper. My son, Tim, has a recording studio in his house, and he meets many such hopefuls, some with talent, but very few with anything approaching the assets of personality and character it would take to rise as an Alger hero. And while I was sleepwalking through my relatively idyllic salad days, those who stood to benefit the most from the doctrines of hyper-individualism were working steadily to bring them back. Let's say fair economics, rugged individualism, and even the thoroughly discredited application of Darwinism to social and economic status. By now, as you've heard, great portions of FDR's New Deal have already been dismantled. What is missing from the picture today is some positive notion of solidarity. Perhaps that word is alien or even off-putting to you, largely connoting the sort of violence and coercion that I alluded to in connection with the strikes of the first Gilded Age. The word has always made me uneasy. I grew up awash in an era and an atmosphere of self-reliance. One of my earliest memories is watching my father single-handedly re-shingle the summer cabin that his father built before him. With no tutelage except a few how-to books, I've accumulated little bits of experience making, patching, and repairing things. Sometimes I confess to the detriment of whatever housing Laura and I were renting at the time. (laughs) I have felt the sting of the little six-word suggestion that must surely be the sentence a self-styled handyman least wants to hear. Quote, maybe you should call the plumber, end quote. Professionally, too, I have spent a great deal of my life working in isolation. I lost my first teaching job at Indiana University, for lack of research. And the reason I failed to get anywhere as a researcher was precisely because I refused to ask for help. It would have been easy to ask one of the several established faculty members in the same specialty of mathematics what they were doing and whether they had any ideas for problems that I could work on. They were generous, and I'm sure they would even have allowed me to collaborate had I asked. But to ask would have been anathema to me then. Years later, at Augsburg College, under the patient tutelage of my great friend Larry Copes, who taught me for the first time, in fact, something about what was going on in the minds of my students, I learned to collaborate with him, both in solving problems and in experimenting with teaching techniques. In my present career as a computer programmer, it takes continuous effort, repeating to myself over and over again the mantra, My colleagues do good work. To avoid taking over every interesting segment of every project I can as a lone wolf and hero. If you, like me, associate the word solidarity with the union movement and socialism, perhaps that is a measure of the dominance in our country of anti union, anti socialist ideology. But many people use the term in a much broader sense. The Emily Towns excerpt you heard Ginny read, and the quote from Cardinal O'Malley at the top of the Order of Service, which comes from his blog, are examples. The kind of respect for and collaboration with my coworkers that I struggle to learn is only a tiny baby step in the right direction. The idea of solidarity that Reverend Towns and Cardinal O'Malley are talking about is a species of hyper-empathy, reaching across broad swaths of humanity, and I'm sad to say, still beyond my comprehension. It's an interesting exercise to compare our society to others. My friend Jim Riley notes that many African societies In many such societies where there's no government safety net, people routinely pool their own meager resources to help a relative or fellow villager who's sick or in some other dire straits. The Swedish example, about which I know a bit more, is instructive, too. There's an ancient Swedish folktale about a woman named Fortuna who has the supernatural power to give riches to one person and take them away from another. In the tale, she comes to three equally poor farmhands who are all named Pear. At random, she chooses one and says, I was going to help another first, but he has turned from me, so I'm coming to you instead. But remember one thing, always be good to the poor. With Fortuna on his side, Pear marries a rich widow. He succeeds in everything, and his property increases. But he forgets the poor. Fortuna turns up again and says, Now you shall receive your just punishment and be poor again. I shall help another who understands better than you how to bear his good fortune. After that, pair falls constantly into misfortune and in the end dies of starvation. His riches go to another who is unfailingly merciful to those without means. His luck, therefore, lasts his whole life. This belief that good luck is in limited supply and if you have a lot of it, you are obliged to share it with those who have less is deeply ingrained in the Swedish national character. People who think that the willingness of the Swedes to sustain a high-tax welfare state stems from encounters with 19th century socialism are missing the mark by at least six centuries. We don't know how much longer because the origins of the Fortuna tale are lost in the mists of medieval time. What should, we do, what should we be doing here in the U.S.? Many in this congregation need no admonitions from me. You are social workers, organizers, fundraisers, advocates, lobbyists for the aged, sick, or disenfranchised, and political professionals who spend your days strenuously in empathic support of the large numbers of people for whom ours is not an advantageous economy or society. I am speaking instead now to those of us who, like me, have little or no actual experience living the kind of solidarity that I'm grasping to describe. Can we not meld the two strains that have made and should continue to make this nation great? The first is enterprising individuality. Expect inventiveness and creative insight from everyone you encounter we cannot afford to neglect a single contribution, however unorthodox, humble, or unexpected, toward the solution of the many ills, social, political, economic, and technical, that beset us. Our higher education system is still the envy of the world, a veritable font of innovation, and there must be no bars to access to it, nor an inadequate system of primary and secondary schools to prepare young people for it. The second strain of greatness is our promise of equality. No other nation has succeeded in the same way as a melting pot, subordinating ethnic to national identity. But we put that success at risk if we do not continue to imagine the plight of others as our own. Those who understand how to put into practice these complementary facets of nurturance, upholding the individual without losing sight of our commonality, Please teach the rest of us. I can't think of a better way to celebrate Labor Day than to rededicate ourselves to seeing in everyone both a brother or sister and the light of the world. So be it.